I'm James Robertson. And I'm Jeff Costello. Welcome to Unbound, fearlessly exploring issues that matter. So this week, we got a bit of a different setup here. Um, we have got a two-part. So James and I are just going to have a bit of a longer chat because it's been a while since we kind of did a full catch-up together and uh, got some things off our chest. So we're going to do that. And then we're going to turn to a conversation we have with uh, Scott Delang-Boom, who's a podcaster and uh, kind of ha- knowledgeable housing person in Vancouver. Is that how you kind of think about him, James? Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's, uh, yeah, I think that's uh, that's a fair assessment. Yeah. Excellent. So what's been going on with you? You had a bit of a, a tweet storm today about uh, leadership <laughs> uh, and the lack of it, the lack of adults in the room. So what are you feeling around well, well, before, we start, <laughs> before we start, I, uh, you know, I think uh, everyone's kind of feeling the pandemic a bit. I'm sure my tweet uh, was that. And usually uh, when we're doing this, Jeff's having a bit of a pull of a beer, you know, and I'm usually having some tea. Uh, not tonight. Not tonight. I, I'm I'm joining him with a, a local a local brew. I've got the one of my favorites there, the Play Dead IPA uh, from my, my town in Port Moody. Um so uh, here, here's to you, Jeff. Cheers. Cheers, buddy. Cheers. <laughs> We're ten episodes uh, deep now. It's a big celebration it, for us. It is. We've been consistent, being consistent for ten weeks. That's more than I can say for most things in my life. So, you know, take, or take the wins where I can. And we're so successful. I still get the uh, uh, occasional text from someone. We're talking about something, and I'm like, "Yeah, you know what? We we discussed that on my podcast." And even though they follow me on social and all that stuff, they always come up. You've got a podcast. Well, that's why we need people who are listening to recommend our podcast to their friends, family, and children, and to rate our podcast five stars, which is something I actually haven't done yet because I have to figure out how to do that. But wherever you're listening to this, <laughs> click the rate podcast thing. Give us five stars. Leave us a leave us a comment. Leave us a question. We'll answer your question. I'll put that out there. And uh, yeah, I yeah. like that. Let's do that. Let's send in questions. Yeah, if you if you do a review. Take a photo of it, clip it, and tweet it at James and I so we can see it. And we'll make sure we get to your question this week, even if it's snarky and abusive of us. <laughs> Occasionally, we'll deal with snark. The funny thing is, is uh, we didn't practice that. That was a, that was a really good way to sell it. <laughs> I just I'm like a seller. I'm out. a seller. I'm a seller. ABC, James. Always be closing. <laughs> always, always be closing. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I guess that's why I'm drinking beer and not coffee. <laughs> Coffee's for closers. Coffee's for coffee. That's right. <laughs> Coffee's for closers. Okay, so. Tweets. Um, well, I think, you know, it's um, it's a little bit dark on social media, media, whatnot, because uh, a travel advisory was issued today from the U.S., uh, you know, how the, how things have changed, uh, you know, where us citizens are getting cautioned about traveling, uh, to Canada. So here we are, uh, vaccines are late. And I just had this point where like, I think I read something about, uh, vaccinations take so long, a certain period of time before they become effective. And really we're already in the rager of the third, uh, pandemic, rates are going up. So it's kind of like too little, too late. Um, you know, and, and I think what I get a sense is we kind of get a little drip fed of of good information 
of like, hey, here's a registry, online registry system to register. And so you you register and you get a little dopamine dump of uh, like, hey, I'm now in the system. But really, if you look at our vaccination rates, they are abysmal. And um, I just, it kind of takes me to our, where we are at politically in Canada. Um, I don't think we're in a good place. And I, I, I just get this weird sense of we're, we're on this kind of course towards balkanization of Canada. There is an increasing, you know, through this pandemic, um, through the language, a lot of our leaders and people that surround there and media types, there is an increasing, um, uh, what would he say? Like, just not really a promotion of Canadian institutions. Canada, like there's this constant selling of systematic racism, you know, of of Canada's, you know, country being full of, 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 of sin, of, and, and meanwhile, while they're saying all this stuff, um, <laughs> at the same time, you know, we've got this pandemic, we have a abysmal vaccination program, huge inflation in in housing. I mean, I could probably list a whole bunch of other things, you know, and at the same time, like we have this um, am- ambiguity morally uh, when it comes to international affairs and relations. Don't seem to have that moral ambiguity when it comes to, you know, looking down on Canada and its history. And I'm just, I'm kind of tired of it. I'm like, well, you know, this is a country, this country, and I think especially like at the federal level, has to uphold higher ideals, has to uphold a certain um, cohesive myth um, that's something bigger than ourselves. And we're just not there, Jeff. I I just, I, I think it's not there. And I sense, and I've heard this from other people. Um, that there is a balkanization of Canada slowly occurring. We are down, going down a very bad path. And I'm just, I'm, I'm scared of where we're going. And the thing is, I, what I keep finding, you know, through other parties, like the Green Party that wants to get 16-year-olds to vote. And I, even we talk about is, how do we track younger voters? How do we get younger voters? My, my big thing in this was, how do we get adults to get into the room? How do, like, how, like, how can we have our leaders act as adults um, and and honor the positions that they uphold? I, I just don't see it. I haven't seen it in our province. Uh, I think there is a lot of argument for other um, provincial leaders. I haven't, you know, we can go down to municipal. I definitely haven't seen it in a lot of municipal levels. And then federally, I just don't see it federally. Um, I think it's brutal. And that's, you know, what, like... Um, I think far too often we try to compare ourselves to the States. I don't care about the States. I care about Canada. And right now I don't need to compare it to anything other than just my own measurements. And Canadians, I think, have a very, uh, a right to be disappointed in their political leaders. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I'd echo some of that. I think, I think that, uh, I think this pandemic and our response and then our response to the response (laughs) um is really telling of how we are i don't want to use the world (laughs) word uh like a bullshit country but i think that we are totally okay with mediocrity Mm. i think that it's a total kind of like acceptance of mediocrity and lack of ambition you know 
I think that, you know, people will, people will, you know, go and make arguments about whether the liberals have done a good job rolling this out or not. Um, my read on that is that it was going to be, a, if you'd asked, if you'd asked most liberals behind closed doors, January 15th, early February, they would have thought it was going to be an absolute catastrophe. And then they threw enough money at enough places that the vaccine started coming in uh, slower than they should have, but they started coming in nonetheless. But I think that if you'd asked most Canadians, you're like, yeah, that's fine. It is yeah, what it is. It is what it is. I mean, hear that just, too like, much. It is what it, I'm happy. You know, even kind of my in-laws like, well, I'm, I've waited this long. I'm happy to wait another, you know, couple weeks. And it's really sad in a way. It's like we've become this country of people who are really happy to sit in our homes, work from home, you know, hope that our property goes up in, you know, our house goes up in value because we don't want to invest in the stock market because that's kind of too risky or too mm. capitalistic. And we don't want to have to invest and kind of deal with the debt, with the, the, uh, there's ups and downs, but the, the, the good and the bad of having things like Facebook and Uber be and Google become businesses in your country because we look at them now and we say, oh, well, they have all these, you know, downsides. Facebook is just way too consuming of our media. It's like, yes, it's also a multi-billion dollar company that changed the world that all got started, you know, in California. And we don't have a lot of those here because I think a lot of people are just unambitious. We, and I don't mean on an individual scale. I think people have ambitions here. People are ambitious. People are smart. But on a national scale, we don't have this desire to be like, well, why couldn't we have been faster yeah. with the vaccines? Why can't we have, you know, world-changing technologies coming out of Toronto and Vancouver? Why can't we diversify our housing and create creative, cutting-edge cities with better transit? We always just say, well, you know, you know, one half of us says it's totally fine the way it is. This is a pure NIMBY thing. Don't ever change. Don't ever build more houses. But make sure that the interest rates stay low so I don't have to, you know, pay more than 1.5% on my mortgage. And then we've got another half of us that just rolls over and says, the path is kind of blocked for me because I can't get ahead in the housing market or, you know, you know, mm. this, I don't get paid enough. And there is a real lack of kind of entrepreneurial, serious entrepreneurialship. And there's two sides to that. And I'll just give you one quick anecdote. Entrepreneurialship and, and the growing of businesses is not just about young people or ambitious people building bootstrapping businesses. It's about finding investors who are willing to put their money into new ideas exciting ideas and risk losing yeah. it. And I think that is as much of a problem, in fact, more of a problem than the, the than finding young people with creative ideas. <clears throat> you know, people talk, I, you know, I have a lot of conversations with a good friend of mine who listens to this podcast and he'll know the conversation I'm talking about, about uh, Calgary, because we talk all the time and we say, I used to be from Calgary. He is also from Calgary. You know, Calgary has a 25% vacancy in the downtown core. Why the hell aren't we paying tech companies to move into downtown Calgary? Just pay their move, give them tax, you know, rebates, or whatever, to move their businesses mm -hmm. there. And part of the answer is because the investing community in Calgary, if you want to start a new software company or you want to start an Uber, Uber Eats, you know, DoorDash, whatever it is, the investing community in Calgary is so old school and only familiar with the oil and gas industry that you just can't go out at lunch and find five or six wealthy people to get, you know, a couple hundred thousand bucks from to get your company rolling. You've got to go somewhere else. And where do they go? Well, they're like, well, I might as well pack up and go to California. 
because that's where all the money's flowing. If I want to get my business off the ground, I got to, me and my partner have got to go live in a shitty house in California and go pound the pavement till we can find some investors. There's, and investors here are justified saying, why would I take a risk on, if I've got a couple of hundred, if I've got a couple million dollars in my pocket, why would I take a risk on some tech startup when I can just buy another home, rent it out and make 15% year over year on my home, 20% yeah. year over year on the value of the home. Why would I, and, and if it goes, if it goes fine, if the market only gives me 5%, well, I still got home, I, I can still sell it. I'm not out money. Why would I take the risk? And I think that's one of the downsides of having this booming housing market that nobody appreciate is that people who want to start businesses, whether that's restaurants, whether that's tech companies, whether that's manufacturing stuff, whatever it is, they need they need people to invest in them. It can't just be coming from the government grants. They need people to invest in them. And if the market is set up in such a way where there's no incentive for wealthy people to do that, to pay it forward to younger people, to help them, you know, and, and not 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 give them handouts, become an investor and a mentor yeah. to them and make the profits on the other side. Why would they do that when the real estate market is so hot that there's just no, why would you put money anywhere yeah. else? Yeah, yeah, definitely. It definitely calls for uh, more, I guess, outside the box uh, thinking, especially when it comes to like uh, investment, angel investment, all that in terms of startups. Like, can there be uh, write-offs uh, for losses based on investment and all that? Things that encourage uh, risk-taking. Um, you know, like I, I almost feel like that's a, a like something that's frowned upon on our country uh, right now, and I feel that. Um, yeah, I mean, but I mean, look at the difference. I bet if you polled Canadian opinions of venture capitalists, mm -hmm. just as a general firm, mm -hmm. and you'd get a very different result on what people think about them, whether they're good or bad people in Canada versus the US. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, I, I, you know, like so much of our government right now, all it talks about is expanding government. And like, and we have uh liberals and I, I mean you know and the ndp and some like i, I i'll say the ndp because i'm from bc and both the federal ndp and the provincial ndp uh, and they're all kind of one party um same party same mechanism but they're very popular here and so all they talk about is more and more taxes more and more increased cost of living which like are you kidding me like the cost of living here is suffocating already and I'm like the ever increasing size of the public sector cannot be the way ahead for this country. It cannot. It's already very big. It's already very robust. And right now we're in this really weird place um, going into a potential election. We keep getting this election thing held over us of. Well, this third wave is going to protect us from an election. We'll see about that. Um, <laughs> you know, it's. It's this 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 thing of like of of ever increasing like cost just giving out money money like like there is no financial foundation or reality anymore, and we're just blowing through money like it's nobody's business. And anyone you talk like to in politics, they're like, oh, it's suicide to even go like near towards saying anything of austerity or whatnot. Like, and we're we're now talking about universal basic income. Okay, sure, we can have that conversation. Tell me what you're gonna cut. To make this affordable because we just can't keep going down this road of blowing cash um, and just creating like ever increasing debt uh, as a country. I'm just like, it, it's, 
you know what? Like maybe it makes me a pariah to say this, but I, like, yeah, there, there has to, the, the, the party needs to stop in that realm and we need to start talking. And I think in the realm that, that you're discussing in terms of how do we encourage risk-taking, how do we encourage, um, like venture capital investments, like in technologies, whatnot, because it can't be from constant expansion of government programs and the public state. It just, and increasing taxes, it, the, the two like that does not equal risk taking on the other side. I, I just, I can't, no, it just doesn't. Um, you know, we can have a very clever and a roundabout conversation how in some measure it can't, but pure and simple, it really doesn't. And I mean, yeah, go ahead. I, 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 I have a different take on the debt thing than you do. I, I, I have the sh- I do I'm not a believer in modern monetary theory. <laughs> I don't think that ever increasing deficits are sustainable or a good thing. I do think that there is a I, I am not as as concerned about the debt at this point in time because of what we're going through. Mm-hmm. My concern and I think this is if you're a conservative, I think this is how you thread if you're a federal conservative at least, I think this is how you thread the needle on the debt issue. You have to say one, we've got to spend money to, to help prop the economy up here. And there's some good historical precedent for that now. It was clear in the 2008 crisis, not enough money got spent mm. to get the economy back where it was. And it, it sluggishly took three or four years to get ramped up again. Um, if more money had been spent, it may have not been wasted so much time. Uh, those are hypotheticals, but I think that's one okay. read of, of what's happened in 2008. My concern is where the money is being spent, and is it being spent effectively? I've always taken the position. So let me go back to you on this. So a government that is, go ahead. This is a weird (laughs) position for a conservative to take. I have no problem paying taxes. I think it's good to pay taxes. I'm happy to pay more taxes, but I want to see value in my community and in my society reflective of the amount that I'm paying. And if my taxes go up 10%, I want to see an imp- a tangible improvement somewhere. It doesn't have to be for me. It's not a selfish thing like I'm paying taxes, therefore I want more back. But if I if my if my if city property taxes go up ten percent, they better have those people taken care of at the Strathcona you know encampment. They better find a way to provide them the service that they need and also secure the parks back, right? Like so, there's got if you pay more, you want to see what you're getting. And I think the problem we're going to end up with with the deficit is we're going to end up being taxed more and more, but not actually seeing those benefits because so much of it is going to be going to debt, uh, debt repayment, debt management, and to programs. Like most of our debt is not going into social programs. It's going into buying bonds, mm-hmm. right? We're, we're building up debt just to buy bonds to keep the con- economy afloat. Nobody really sees like the tangible value of that except in a low interest rate, which 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 only really helps certain groups yep. access credit. It doesn't help the majority yep. of middle and lower income individuals. Yeah. So there's all this debt we're building up and it's not actually providing a quality of life improvement or a community improvement to people at the bottom of the food, at the base level. Yeah. That's my take. Now you can well, I, you provide good points. Um, I just, I, I think there's a very strong argument to be had to say we pay enough taxes. We pay enough taxes and there has, especially if we are to uh, at all be competitive with the U.S., um, we have to look at areas where we can uh, cut taxes. And having worked in government um, and just having seen things, you can see things with your own eyes right now. Government is not efficient. 
Um, And in some measures, that is a good thing. Bureaucracy is slow for in some ways that it doesn't allow us to trip uh, rapidly into mistakes. Um, But to, to this this element that always thinks that government's the answer. And I think, I think there's a, a a high element of arrogance I find from um, groups in the left that purport utopian dreams um, because it's, it's not that they trust people to have the answers. They believe they have the answers and that's the difference. And conservatives need to tell that story a lot more. You know what? Like it's not me that's going to create the wealth or create the next big tech startup or help uh, like it's that's going to push the green revolution it's going to be some kid that's going to have a dream that's you know with some creative element it's honoring people's creativity honoring people's ingenuity work ethic drive that's what it is it doesn't mean like we're getting rid of the state we're getting rid of um you know the um, social security all those things that help people when they're not at their best and all that like all those things are great. I, I, you know what? They're fantastic. But right now, that's not where we're at. We're at an element where um, we are like got the foot on the gas to a, a very large expansion of the public state. And you know what? Like the public sector has had a very different experience. Um, I agree with uh, that. Of, of the pandemic. The public sector has been fully insulated from a lot of ups and downs in the financial market. And there there is going to, I mean- You talk I about homeowners? Like that's, I guess where a lot of your I don't owners. think it matters what political stripe you wear. The issue around public, um, empl- the public employees and the underfunded pensions that they have is a massive financial issue that nobody can wrap their head around how to deal yeah. with it. I mean- this this is going to sound harsh, I guess. Uh, I don't know why. I, I mean, because I because I, I do think. How do I say this? A lot of times we hear conservative governments say that they're going to find they're going to find be able to reduce taxes and they're going to make up of the difference in efficiencies or deregulation, and that's a genuine belief that they're going to do that. But then when the rubber hits the road it's really tough to actually find some of those efficiencies because you get into a situation where you're like, oh, well, we can find efficiencies here, but we got to lay off about 150 people in this department. And I think those are the tough decisions. But if you don't lay those people off, you can't find the efficiencies because just shuffling them to another department doesn't actually take the load off your budget. I think that there there has been significant developments in narrow artificial intelligence, computing systems, automation. Big time. I don't understand why the government isn't, and I'd be happy if they did dump a couple billion dollars into applying that technology to their own employees, just streamline them. And yeah, that means you're going to have to lay some people off and, and hopefully, I mean, not for them individually, but you're going, you're going to have to lay them off. And that is going to be the only way to control the size of government. If the government wants to continue to increase its size in terms of dollar value, and maintain some sort of fiscal capacity and reasonableness, you have to be able to operate and provide whatever services you're providing at a lower marginal cost. So, and that means finding efficiencies by removing the jobs, you know, and and the stupid things. In BC, this one always pisses me off, especially coming from Alberta. Why do I have to go 
to a now I didn't it doesn't it's changed since the pandemic but it took until tw- it took a pandemic to have ICBC allow people to renew their <laughs> you know like insurance every year online previously you had to go to Buntain or whatever the insurance group is where they've got a staff of 15 people processing applications but really all they're doing is they're plugging there's only one insurer it's not like they can shop you on different, you know, insurers in the province. They're just plugging your car information and your risk, some information about you into a formula, pressing OK, and there you go. Well, you know what? I can do that. I do it all day at work. I plug things into a spreadsheet. I press OK. That's I just don't that's get how the world how works. The ICBC has become like so, this sacred So thing. ICBC is a great example of like, well, there's a, there's a great way to stream make it better for the client be better for the insurer the, the insurees sorry the insureds the people who are actually using the insurance mm-hmm. be able to just renew it online when i was in alberta i didn't do anything it was like they'd send me a letter once a year and be like have there been any changes to your policy if so please go to this website and you know, plug this number in and t- tell us the changes if not your insurance will automatically renew on this date and we are assuming that there's no changes. So the liability is on you if there is. No problem. I just, you don't look at it. You just don't look at it. And here it's like, oh, I've got to book. And because it's COVID, you got to book an appointment and you've got to like do all this stuff. And it's just, it's staff. And, and what it is, it's entrenched people who own the little insurance uh, brokerages who've been there for years providing service to their communities mm-hmm. in a time when that those kind of uh, the ability to streamline those processes didn't exist. I'm sorry, they're here. It's no different than the newspaper industry. It's no different than the fax industry. We don't talk about faxes a lot very more because people found a more efficient way to send information around. So, I mean, unless, frankly, unless you're a bank, because I deal with them a lot too. We have to healthcare. Fax, to fax them all machine the time. Still, still is in healthcare. Fax machine is in healthcare. But <laughs> fax machines are another, it's similar to the kind of insurance. Like that should just be moved online and largely automated. Yeah. Pure and simple. It's, it's, it's just running numbers on a table. You don't need to be employing people. And at the end of the day, yeah, the government isn't paying for the people at the brokerage to, to, to do that service. It's a private business, but it's showing up in all of their insurance payments. Yeah. Right. I, you know what? I, I mean, so if you want to cut, if you want to cut the budget, that's how you have that in my mind, that's how you have to do it. I mean, you got to be a little, yeah, there, there, there's that. Um, and then we go back to the pandemic, um, I think, what is it? O'Toole wants to do like some form of audit of the, the last pandemic or sorry, not the last, it wants to do an audit once we get past this pandemic. Oh, yeah. Jeez. Oh my God. <laughs> but what I, you know, I really, I really take what, uh, our former guest, Jennifer Sanford, um, uh, you know, I take what she says to heart. Um, I was just really taken back by her, her intelligence and the way she spoke on the issues and her season's coming out this, uh, Friday. So I'm really looking forward to that, but it's, it's kind of this thing of what she said is finish the damn sentence. And instead of saying that audit thing, I feel that it it should almost have been a Biden-esque moment of O'Toole saying, you know what, we have the capacity, like both state and private sector in the gumption to say, we are going to push this government for a million doses a day. We are in the third wave. This is an emergency. It is time to drive this. And we will work with the government, whatnot. Like, just just finish the sentence. Push push this government and say, yeah, you know, there's a lot of rumors uh, right now of an election. If that, uh, and, you know, if that occurs, this is what we're going to do for a plan. This is what we're going to have. We're going to be doing the million doses a day, whatnot. I think you'd be... I mean, from a pure political point of view, 
if I was in Aaron O'Toole's PR camp, strategy camp, I'd be saying something along the lines of already floating the idea of if there's an election and not every single person in this country is vaccinated, what a horrible, like, like sure. how can you, how can you have any mm-hmm. shame and go forward with an election until you, yeah. you know, per- ensure the safety of the people of this country? So I mean, true, again, very true. Uh, I, I think, think I think I've seen some of and that. And that's one that's an angle that you could yeah. maybe push at that rather than picking a, a dosage. You could say you could hammer at them on that angle. I, 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 I totally take your point. I think there's been failures at every failures. single level, whether that's municipal politics and arguing about mask mandates in buildings <laughs> and or and, and, and you know what I think the biggest thing is and I've I wrote an article in, in Colette about a year ago that, that I think I talked about leadership and about the failure. It's not a typical Quillette article for the people mm-hmm. who don't like Quillette and listen to this podcast. But one of the things that is horrible is just the lack of humility in leadership. Mm. If you make a wrong decision, just come out and say it. Yeah. Like, like just come out and say it. Uh, you know, everybody, especially at the beginning of the pandemic and it showed up in Trudeau's polls Everybody understood that it was a difficult situation and yeah. everybody understood that not they were making decisions without really having as best they could, given the information they're provided and hoping for the best. People understand that yeah. you don't have to pretend like you have all the answers. And if you realize that, like, you know, take, for example, is it uh, Dr. Tam, Tam, I think at uh, the Canadian mm-hmm. uh, yeah. the chief head doctor, chief um, medical officer, yep. chief medical officer, and you know, she came out and she said masks, no masks right away. Masks aren't necessary. Don't worry about it. Don't go out and buy masks. And I mean, we've obviously changed stances on that. Yeah. I don't think I've heard an explanation from her, a clear explanation on why that changed. And it's okay. You know, I'm, you know, I, I think that I don't really under, I never really understood why the no masks thing made sense. Um, but it, but maybe, but maybe she had good reasons, but just come out and explain it. Just be like, look, when I made that decision, there were, these were the things we were thinking. This was the information I had at the time. We were worried about not having them for, 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 for primary care. And we needed to make, we needed to try to secure those first. That was a priority. We also didn't want to create a situation where people were rushing out to buy things in panic and that create problems in the supply chain. Like just laid out. And if you, and and if you have now said, now that we're here and the science has developed, we can, that's why we have changed our mind. Yeah. That's okay. People understand that. Like, it's okay. You don't have to kind of be always right all the time and pretend you never get anything wrong, which is a hallmark of this Trudeau government for sure. Um, Horgan isn't much better in BC. Prime example is just the th- recent thing just today. Um, last <laughs> week he said, oh, these young people got to shape up don't ruin it for the rest of us. You got to pull your shit together. Dad is here and he's telling you to, you know, this, it's time you got to get grounded. We got to get serious here. You got to get your head down and study. Uh, get serious. BC CDC numbers come out today. Where's the biggest growth in the infections? Oh, it's the 60 to 69 year olds. Oh, okay. So really it was his age group <laughs> that was doing it. And instead of, and he would have had that information. I can't believe that he wouldn't have had that information. <laughs> yeah. And maybe he had some political thing of he's got a, hit one group to motivate them because he sees risks there. Fine. But explain the difference. Explain why you're like, okay, I hit the kids because we've been seeing a lot of infections at, at bars or restaurants, places that young people tend to hang out. That's why I said it. And I'm worried about them. Yep. 
What a great way to what a great way to bounce back from that. Instead, he doubled down. He's like, I'm not going to apologize for things I say. Meanwhile, you know, the all the boomers lining up for for uh, for vaccines, and the young people are still going to work in with a P1 Phase Three variant pandemic because can't can't shut businesses down. You can't <laughs> can't provide. We can't help them like that. Somebody's got to make me. You know. Who's going to deliver my food? So, you know, Jeff. It's, anyway, <laughs> I know. Uh, I just have one wish as we as we close off, and, and um, from what I'm seeing, uh, we have what the Liberal and NDP conventions coming up the weekend, and uh, I've you know there's there's uh, a couple pundits, people putting out there the level of crazy, especially with the NDP. There is a whole lot of crazy in terms of the motions being put <laughs> yes, forward. Yes, there is. A whole lot. And actually a lot of really... If you really... thought defunding the police was funny. Yeah. Uh, actually a lot <laughs> of really... Dismantling the entire military yeah. is another story. Like a lot of like probably anti-Semitic views, um, yeah. kissing the boots of dictators, left-wing dictators, some pretty yep. horrible, actually pretty disgusting stuff. Um, sadly, a number of those coming from, uh, areas with, uh, writings within BC, but that said, my wish is for the media to shine a light on this as much as they shine a light on the conservatives. I challenge media figures who always get upset with conservative, um, um, voters that constantly point the finger at media saying there's a bias, there's a bias, there's a bias. And um, they just put them, push them as right wing frenzies. I know a lot of middle of the, you know, middle of this political spectrum people and, you know, just slightly to the right of that people, good uh, salt of the earth people that have had it. And they've pointed the finger enough to say, yeah, this like and they're not crazy conspiracy theorists. There is a big clear bias. So this is my shout out to the media. This is your chance. You've got like go for it, you know, shine a light on it and show that just the other levels of crazy with the other parties there. Um, I think the conservative party and conservative voters deserve that um, from Canadian media figures there. I've had my little rant. Uh, I could have many more, but I think that's enough uh, from me. Yeah. I mean, that wrap it up. I, I don't think, I don't think conservative voters deserve anything from the media. And I think a lot of problems on the conservative side have stemmed from this belief that we deserve certain types of treatment. What I would like to see is media doing what media claims to do, which there, is provide well said, un, yeah. unba- unbiased, a balanced view of things. And turn, I mean, and as I said, kind of before we started that, like the crazy stuff at the NDP convention doesn't hit the floor, doesn't tend to pass votes uh, and become part of their, you know, policy or what platform or whatever they pitch. Um, it's just a chance for these loonies to kind of rail it at, you know, capitalism. Um, but the motions that didn't make it to the floor in the conservative convention were the talk of the town in the media bubble for year for, for yeah. weeks leading up to it about whether or not there was going to be an abortion question. Well, I mean, if you pull, just poll people around abortion, and I've made clear where my stance is on it, that I'm totally pro-choice. But if you poll people, there's a lot more uncertainty around, you know, how people, a lot bigger split on how people feel about abortion and how conflicted they feel than about, you know, praising, you know, putting up, I don't know, what are they talking about? Statues for Che Guevara and, you know, like (laughs) propping up Venezuelan dictators. And the actual only one that I've followed is like, and actually completely eliminating the Canadian military. I don't think that that is a mainstream or even kind of a 
there not, is not you couldn't find 90% you couldn't find 95% of people in this country who think that eliminating the Canadian military is just a great idea yeah, a really well, progressive it, idea but kudos to Terry Glavin who I find pretty middle of the road and he'll call out crazy and stupid on all sides of the spectrum that's why I enjoy him yeah, um, yeah. he said yeah because I'll call out the conservatives I do we oh, did yeah. that we, we do that. that we do that so we, we get that. to call out the other side um he okay. said there's far too much crazy right now. The It's not just a token a bit lot of crazy. crazy there's a lot of crazy from the NDP right now. And it should be uh, a little bit more light should be uh, put on it and yeah. considered. Okay. We got to get to our conversation Let's with Scott it. because it's going to be long anyway. So I uh, hope you enjoy our conversation with Scott. If you like uh, our conversation with him, definitely check out his podcast, Politicoast. Uh, the link will be in the description. And uh, we will see you all next time week or hear you you'll hear us if you <laughs> deem us worthy of your time yes. next week send us questions send yeah. us questions put those reviews in all right let's get after it <laughs> thanks so much guys take care take care Okay, here we are. We are with Scott DeLangboom, uh, one half of the uh, the Politicos podcast. Uh, if you don't know, you should definitely check them out. They have been running uh, for about four and a half years now. Uh, the other half is Ian Bushfield, and they focus a lot on kind of like kind of like what James really. They're the original James and I. Uh, probably doing a much better job. They've been doing it longer. Uh, they focus on BC and federal politics, kind of like us. Uh, we're really looking forward to having a chat with them because uh, they've been doing this for longer than we have. They've got great opinions. Uh, I know Scott is really plugged in with the municipal politics, uh, the housing, the zoning, that kind of discussion. And so I think that's probably what we're going to spend most of our time about. But uh, Scott, why don't you say hello to the people and uh, let them know what you, who you are, what's on your mind? Yeah, hello. Uh, thanks for listening since your first episode. And uh, nice to finally... Uh connect virtually and uh, get a chance to talk housing. Uh, yeah, so in addition to doing the uh, Politos podcast, which uh, we look at provincial as well as federal politics from BC lens, uh, it's a little less, uh, I think, uniformly one side of the political spectrum like yours is. Uh, Ian is quite the... Uh, He's quite left. Quite left, yes. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I think it makes for a good, uh, good show. And uh, well, sometimes I'm cheering you on, Scott, when I'm listening, and I'm like, "Come on, man, get in there, yeah. get in there." <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, we're both able to call out our own side when we uh, think yeah. we're wrong, which I think makes for a, a good show that isn't just uh, constantly button heads. <laughs> well, that's what's important. I mean, yeah. I'm glad I don't have to butt heads with James that often, but uh, yeah, yeah. No, nobody wants to be crossfire. <laughs> so, so if we start talking about housing, uh, probably uh, an appropriate place to talk, to start talking about this because it's a topic we've wanted to to bring up a couple times is with some recent developments, today's developments in the uh, in the Vancouver mayoral race, which is happening next year. Uh, with the NPA. So for people who are listening outside of Vancouver, Scott, why don't you give us a quick rundown of who the NPA are, 
This is the nonpartisan association. It's a party, a municipal party in Vancouver. And be quite partisan association in practice, but yeah, the, the, yeah they are be. quite partisan in in practice. But uh, uh, and um, give us a rundown of what happened kind of today, which was a bit of a shocker to people who follow it. Sure. So the NPA is one of Canada's oldest civic parties. They, again, the history. I think they got founded in the kind of 1930s as oh, wow. uh, very similar to actually the BC Liberals, where it was a coalition of kind of conservatives, liberals, mostly to keep out the socialists, as uh, BC has a <laughs> long tradition of. Um, and yeah, it's been basically one of the most successful political outfits in the Western world, run the city for most of its history. Uh, but over the last decade or so has had a bunch of problems. has been out of power since Sam Sullivan was the mayor back in uh, 2008. Yeah, it's been a while. It's been a yeah. while. I, that was and, actually and the end of his term, 2008. Yeah, and, you know, I, I, I think for... Oh, I think for, for people who for, aren't... For, for for aren't listening, I think that where where do they sit on the political spectrum generally, and what do they at least yeah, proclaim to be in the municipal politics? Right, so they're the right of center party, the big tent on that side of the spectrum. Although it's been increasingly shrinking as a tent over the last several cycles, uh, typically they've been seen as an anti-bike lane, reasonably pro-development, <laughs> as long as it's in specific concentrated areas, but also the party of the homeowner, which has led to a lot of uh, internal conflicts throughout their history, and particularly in recent uh, years. So, and, I mean, council, tr describing the alliances, the way that council, city council in Vancouver falls down is very strange right now, because you've basically got well, let's pretend that there were some councillors who didn't leave the NPA because they were elected there and some of them have now kind of left and said they're sitting as independents. But there's really three parties and they agree with each other on some very strange things and they disagree with each other on some very strange things. So how does, if, if you want to pass a building, how are those votes likely to fall down, Scott? So I, before we get into that, I think it's actually kind of important to go into what civic politics is, and it's a little strange if you're used to talking about politics federally or provincially, because yes, you still have the left and right, and they're still the way a lot of people think about it, uh, including, I mean, us talking about it here, as well as just how it's generally viewed by commentators. But really, there's a lot of issues that don't fall neatly along partisan lines, particularly with questions of civic development, uh, where the cities go, are, are you pro-growth, anti-growth? And there's factions within both the left and the right that are pro and anti-growth. Um, I've, I've heard it described as there's, in addition to the left-right axis, there's an urbanist conservationist axis mm -hmm. yeah. on that, or urbanist pastoralist axis, if you want to be a little more uh, pejorative about uh, that side of things. And... The MPA, they got five councillors elected, one of them since left. They're kind of split on the urbanist conservationist issue. You've got 
couple of them who are very pro-development, very pro-city building, and you have a few of them, uh, like Council of Trolley and Hardware, it's probably the uh, most <laughs> prominent example, who is very much a lock everything down, let's preserve this, let's not change the city, and and my favorite just to jump in my favorite fact about that colleen hardwick always brings up is the claim that vancouver is not growing as a city <laughs> this is my favorite thing it's we don't really need to build houses there isn't really a housing crisis it's just developers because there is actually no growth in the city that, that's her legitimate kind of take by trying to look at the population census which isn't actually reflective of the demand for for population in the city so yeah it turns out Turns out if you don't build many new homes, not many yeah. new people move to a city. So those aren't really independent <laughs> variables. Where the demand to live in a city shows up is in the real estate prices, which I don't know if you've tried to rent a place recently around here or even worse, buy one. Yeah, it is it's, not it's, cheap here. And that is just because yeah. Vancouver is a great place. Like I wanted to I don't know if you noticed this, Scott, but I've seen some people that are really anti-development uh, uh, at least within my community, um, talk about well, look, demand's going down. People are people are like there's there's been some tweets now that's showing uh, there has been a, an element of migration outside the city or whatever, and they've been using that. And what I find funny about is is it just reinforces the point that a number of us have been bringing up is like yeah, people are they can't afford to live here. So I have friends that continue to live further and further out where. You know, they work downtown Vancouver. Now they're going to Maple Ridge. And now there's people talking about, like, I can do the commute to Abbotsford, you know, back and forth. So, yeah, of course, of course, people are, are, are you know, that the demand is maybe softened a little bit uh, just because there's, there's no place they can live. They're very, like, can't afford. And rent, uh, I was shamed when I had a coworker and his family moved down uh, looking for some... Uh, housing and i was like oh you know you should come to the tri-cities it's beautiful you know like great families oriented and all that and he's like is, is there anything available and i'm like uh, you know what i'll look i'll find i'll find you a couple great places anyway there was like nothing there was nothing <laughs> so <laughs> i'm actually in that very position right now i'll as terrible as the pandemic has been i've been lucky enough to stay employed through it and my expenses have dropped quite a bit so i'm now actually in the point where i've not a huge, but decent enough down payment that I can start looking for a place. And yeah. there is just nothing in Vancouver in my price range. <laughs> I, the the closest thing I can get is New West. And yeah. uh, for people who aren't local here, that's basically not the Nets municipality, but the one after that. Yeah. Well, I think yeah. one thing that has been really interesting to me is that I think there's two sides of the housing debate that perpetually confound each other. So when you hear the Bank of Canada come out last week uh, and they say, you know, everything looks good, or you hear the um, CMHC, they come out and they say everything, you know, we've got the, the right boundaries in place and everything looks good. They're talking about something completely different from demand. They're talking about the risk level of lenders within the housing market. And that's a totally important thing to worry about. It's a totally legitimate, important thing to worry about and to put policies in place for but it has nothing to do with whether or not the housing that is growing or not growing or doing whatever it is doing is actually providing housing to meet the demands of individuals. All it's saying is that we're not at risk of going into a 2008 financial collapse because of a bad debts. Um, and those two things get 
confused all the time because people say, mm. why is the Bank of Canada not doing anything? And the truth is because they don't really care about whether or not there is enough room for new people to move into cities. Their job is to make sure that the economy stays stable and that people aren't going to, you know, completely, we're not going to, you know, bankrupt the country because we've overexposed ourselves on lending. Um, but again, a lot of the, I guess, the NIMBYs or the anti, the people who don't think we need to do much growing, um, will use that and say, look, everything's fine. There's no, just, we don't need any changes. So mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, I think it's probably useful to back up a bit. Sure. Yeah. Got off this tangent where we're talking about the uh, NPA breakdown. Yes, uh, yes. <laughs> Vancouver Council, you also have the Green Party, which is very much kind of a conservationist, pastoralist. They don't like concrete and would much prefer everyone live on, you know, an acreage with a Tesla in their driveway than the kind of dense, walkable, So bicycle. the west side. Community gardens. Yeah. Don't forget yeah. community gardens for food Which, security. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which sounds great when you first start to think about it, or before you really dig into it, but yeah, the greenest place in all of BC is the West End because it is the most walkable place. The fewest percentage of people anywhere in the province own cars there. There's the most walking to work. There's the most biking. I'm not actually sure if it's the most biking because it is so walkable, but it's an area where it's really easy to get around without a car. And you get so many efficiencies when you just have a bunch of people living close together. Uh, mm. Need to drive less to make deliveries. The, the Amazon delivery drivers are more efficient. Just all these little efficiencies add up to the point where you're actually much greener just living in a big city in an area that you can walk the, to the places you need. You know, Scott, though, don't like, and if for some of our viewers that are really in federal, I, I just, it's interesting. I used to be uh, similar uh, in many ways, but um, I, I hope that our listeners can come to understand how important municipal politics matter, especially in major urban areas. Um, and in Vancouver, when I say Vancouver, I'm going to talk about the whole lower mainland. So that's, that's encompassing. So the greater metro Vancouver area, uh, it's a hodgepodge of different municipalities, uh, whatnot. It's the political spectrum. I don't know if it really, it matters. It's a really confusing uh, thing you you do have some people on the right that are pro housing then you do have that element that i guess that's called you know classic uh green toryism which is you know everyone's got a nice little yard and white picket fence and kind of a cottage cottage type mentality um then you have on the left yeah that that green element that scott describes um but also then you have this weird element that does talk uh, about climate change um you know and, and and says we've got to build in urban areas but at the same time from what i've observed in the lower mainland they continue to put regulations and more red tape so it's just this huge fuddle duddle of regulations bureaucracies back and forth very little goes through and and sometimes the most simple of developments we're talking six-story basic plain jane developments the amount of effort that is spent on that and then meanwhile the the cost uh you know cost of development per foot continues to go up which continues to affect uh people in these areas where supposedly all the jobs are so you're forcing people to have to work in this area 
but then you're also putting a very large cost on them to live. Is that kind of what you've observed? Yeah, I think that's definitely the case. Um, so just to build off that a bit and touch on the last fact, please do. Is you, uh, kind of couple people from the left side of the spectrum, but also really split on this. You have uh, Gene Swanson from Cope, the Coalition of Progressive Electors, who is very much a, we need to stop gentrification. If anyone's making money building housing, that's a sign that there's a problem because profit is evil. And uh, then you have one city, which is much more in the kind of pro city building side that is willing to make some compromises on that front in order to get housing built, even if it probably isn't quite as affordable as they'd really like. Um, mm. and, and that kind of wraps up the overview of Vancouver Council. Uh, but to your point about where the overall issues with cities are and why people at other levels should pay attention, uh, what happens in a city is just incredibly important. Yep. It's w where most people live. Something like 80% of Canadians live in a, an urban area. We're an urbanized country. And what your municipal government does just affects you day to day way more than provincial or federal does, particularly federal, which... Um, if you're not in the military or the RCMP or aren't on CPP, for the most part, you don't actually deal with them directly on very many matters. Mm -hmm. But cities and housing and all of these issues have a much more direct impact because people need a place to live. It's across the country hard to find affordable housing. And as important, cities are really the engines of prosperity. There's a huge amount of benefit to just bringing people together and letting that cross-fertilization of ideas happen. Cities are generally much more innovative. It's where the next Google will come out of. It, it may not be Silicon Valley, but it will be an urban area somewhere. And that's the case in a whole bunch of industries where you want to bring smart people together. You want to have them cross-pollinate their ideas and work on complex problems. And to do that, you really need the economies of scale that a city offers. And uh, I think your audience is probably fairly conservative. And there's definitely ideas out there among a lot of conservatives that the resource sector is a primary driver of prosperity in this country. And I, I don't want to downplay that at all because the resource sector is very important, but so is what happens in cities. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's, the real estate industry is no small player yep. in our national economy now either which i don't think is a good thing it's um, not a good thing um no. and i think we need to structure things so that it does get to be a smaller portion proportionally of the economy um and there's a bunch of problems that creates when it uh consumes an ever larger share of the economy too much investment dollars gets funneled into real estate I don't think it's all that healthy for people to be having most of their retirement savings in a single large liquid asset that then they go out and jealously try and protect its value, which is entirely understandable when yeah. you're in that financial situation. But it does create uh, bad second order effects when you try and stop other people from building homes and as a result, raising home prices for everyone. Well, and I think it has a, a huge detrimental impact on the economy of the city as well, because, you know, so I live on the on the west side in my in-laws basement because I'm a lawyer who can't afford a house in Vancouver. 
Um, and if when I, I went up here for UBC, so this is near the UBC campus, and the streets down West 4th or Broadway or West 10th down on this side are completely different. And West 4th, I think I'm thinking of on the way into UBC, is almost like a ghost town because it's, there's just no people around to sustain the main street of, of commercial businesses that existed. Um, COVID obviously hasn't helped that, but that this is pre-COVID even that I'm talking about. Um, this The Safeway, you'll know, uh, Scott, that the Safeway used to kind of be the anchor there and then it left and everything kind of followed with it. But a big part of the problem there is, and I also do my legal practice in this area, is that a lot of the owners in that area are over 70 to be generous. Um, they live on their own in single family homes and they're not the ones going out to restaurants or to shops or to coffee shops or kind of contributing to that. So there's really no kind of population around these commercial centers to feed them. And that then becomes a problem for the city, which needs, which is going to start losing businesses. And, and also, you know, that doesn't even start talk about businesses not able to employ workers, because why would you want to work at a Starbucks or kind of an, an entry level labor position if it means you have to live out, if you can't afford to live within 20 miles of it? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. It, uh, it's really important, I think, just for community building to have a continuous renewal that happens mm -hmm. we you know want the next generation of families to be able to live where they grew up or if they're seeking opportunity finding new place to call home and become part of that community and when it costs a couple million dollars to enter a community that's just not going to happen uh, people who grew up on the west side are now moving further out, whether it's East Vancouver or out into the further out municipalities here. And yeah, leaving the West side is a lot more empty, a lot harder to support businesses. And it ha not just affects the local community, but also affects the province overall and the country overall. I don't know the numbers for Canada, but there's a study a couple of years ago that came out in the US that estimated the U.S. economy and their GDP is something like 10% lower than it could be simply because all the restrictions on land use that various cities have are, is stifling growth and stifling opportunity for so many people. And if you assume that Canada is probably a tenth the size and roughly similar dynamics are at play in both countries, we're, as much as Canada is different, we're not that different on these issues than the U.S., that's two hundred billion dollars of lost prosperity every year for yeah. Canada. It, it's huge. Okay, so just on that, then, what do you see as the fix? Is this something city council can fix? Is this something that the provincial government needs to step in? How, what do you see as the kind of the next five years happening, even if that's nothing? And what do you think the what do you think what do you think the not the reasonable, there's a dream answer for it, but then there's also probably a reasonable answer that's more realistic. Uh, well, before we go into that, I playing out the problem a little more. We, we've talked a lot about kind of the effects and why it's such a problem, but we haven't really dived into what is causing sure. it. Sure, sure. And yeah. I mean, we hinted at it a bit with the Vancouver doesn't need to grow because it isn't building enough housing thing, but that <laughs> really is the problem, is that it is yep. just really hard to build housing here in Vancouver and in many spots in Canada. And 
that is in large part driven by it simply being illegal under city bylaws to build more than a detached house in about 70% of Vancouver. Uh, it gets higher the further out you go and they recently, a couple years ago, allowed duplexes in those areas, but there's been very little uptake on that because uh, of some finer details on how they structured it. But effectively, it's illegal to build anything but the most expensive type of housing in most of Canada, and particularly our large, high-growth, high-opportunity metro areas where the best opportunities are for employment. Yeah, so, and and it's interesting you bring that up because I think... Of, I, and I kind of think about my community and uh, I think about previous BC liberal, which was center right government for uh, BC. Uh, but I think even like, uh, you know, the BC NDP will probably face similar challenges is that um, we have been building uh, mass transit. So SkyTrain uh, system, um, it's I actually really appreciate this system. I'm a big fan of it. Uh, sorry, Ottawa, yours uh, from all I see sucks, but uh, and we've got we've got something pretty great out here. But what they've gone down is this thing of called transit oriented development. So it's like we're going to build a station here and then we expect the municipalities to build, uh, you know, build housing, appropriate housing around mass transit because it helps families. And what I've seen is there's a lot of resistance from the municipalities to meet that um, the, that type of development. Have you observed that as well? I can't hear you, Scott. Scott, you're on mute. <laughs> you did it. Podcasting <laughs> for four be... years and it still happens occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> it's awesome <laughs> all right yeah. um yeah no it, it's absolutely a huge problem and in addition to it simply being illegal to build housing in a lot of cities you also get these dynamics where a lot of people want it that way people don't like new construction by them there's concerns about change uh this typically gets uh, put in the general category of not in my backyard or, or NIMBY. Yeah. Uh, some of that's reasonable. A lot of it isn't. Um, no, nobody likes to live beside a construction site. Um, I, I work in the industry. So I, like, I, I definitely get it. Like I wouldn't want to live right beside my work either. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but the, the, yeah. those are short-term discomforts. And ultimately cities do have to grow and that's it can be can but you do have to allow that or it creates stagnation in a, a really bad way but the problem is the way it's set up particularly with a highly fragmented local environment where there's just a lot of small municipalities is it's really easy every time a building gets proposed uh particularly because the way so many places run it where it's illegal by default and they actually have to go in and change the city bylaw on a case-by-case -case basis to change the zoning in a specific area uh, zoning for listeners who aren't uh deep in the weeds and this is basically a a city law that says what can and can't be built on every single lot in the city um 
And as a result, because these one-off projects have to go through this process, it's really easy for the 20 people who most dislike the idea to come out, call their city councillors. Uh, most places require a public hearing where the public gets to come out and say whatever they want about it, whether or not it's true, factual, mm -hmm. relevant at all. And as a result, you just get a lot of local pressure put really hard on local councils to be as restrictive as possible and turn as much down as possible. And what you don't see in that is the hundred neighbors that think the project's fine, but didn't want to spend an evening trace, uh, going down to City Hall to tell people that, yeah, it's fine if they build an apartment building next door to me. I don't care. Yeah. And yeah. the system that we have in most of Canada is set up so that you don't get that real representative voice. You get the 20 most angry people. Not, not to mention the prospective owners or renters in a building who a building that doesn't even exist yet don't get a say at any sort of council or any representation. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the building I'm in right now uh, that, that I rent in, it was built in 1959. I wasn't around to yeah. go down to City Hall and say, yes, I want this building built because in several decades from now, I want to live there. <laughs> well, I, th I mean, yeah. and I just as an aside, you said around like people saying, you know, they don't like having living next to construction sites. Totally get that. But I'd almost argue in some ways you're dealing with a larger construction project for a larger building is much worse at the time. But once it's built, it's going to be there for 20, 30, 50, 60 years. What you're seeing now is like, there's actually a huge amount of construct housing construction happening in Vancouver. It's going on all the time in all the neighborhoods, but you're flipping one single family home that was old into a new single family home, or you're taking one that's only three years old and you're flipping it again just because you've got the money and once you've bought a $3 million lot, what's another 200,000 bucks to, to re come out, completely redo the house. So, I, I mean, I, I don't, and that's, we see that on every block in the West side with single family homes. There's lots of construction. It's just not adding any additional mm. housing. Yeah. Oh, that's a huge problem, particularly in Vancouver. So uh, the city actually looked at this uh, a little while ago and uh, when the period they looked at from 2014 to 2018, 55% of all floor area built uh, residential floor area built in the city was for single family homes, oh, wow. which means it was replacing old single family homes because of the, the way that the zoning works. Exactly. That is net zero housing. Correct. And that accounts for 55% of residential construction. Uh, the, and then there's an additional 9% for townhomes and which if we're really so, upset at developers making money on, we should we should clamp down on because they shouldn't be allowed to make money flipping single family to single family any more than they should going from single family to some sort of multifamily unit, right? I mean, that would be the reasonable conclusion if you hate developers. <laughs> yeah, hate but capitalism. Uh... let's just hate capitalism. Like, let's get on with it. Let's just quit. Let's quit, you know, dancing around. Let's just hate capitalism. <laughs> yeah, it, it tends not to draw the same amount of hate for, for, uh, for some reason. And, yeah. I am shocked. And, and I, I mean, I, I know the reason why. It's because there's a cultural attachment to detached single family homes. And I, I get it. I grew up in one in uh, the outskirts of Victoria. It, it was nice, but... Uh, 
it's not a reality. It's not a scalable system. Yeah. It's not a way that everyone can live, particularly in hot places like Vancouver that are growing, that need to grow, that need to be able to offer the opportunities to the next generation, and as important, offer places where people can have families. Yeah. So and, I, I, I'm going to riff off of here, for you guys, or I'm going to challenge you to, because I think you guys have some better background uh, in terms of your roots to Vancouver. You brought up uh, the MPA, and um, I'm going to ask you to kind of bring it up again. It's not an organization that I'm particularly familiar with. I know someone sent me something based on the new male candidate, and he's like, what do you think about this? I don't know if it's a good move. And I was like, I, I, I'm, I really don't, I don't know that much. But where I want to go with is right now we've kind of determined cities matter. Cities, you know, and I think they're like suburban wraparounds, which is just a, like the extension of a greater metro area. It matters. It's going to matter for a government or a conservative movement that wants to eventually uh, govern, uh, whether it's within a municipal, provincial, federal. But I'm just going to start at municipal. Why does this? So it matters. What does conservative, uh, you know, a conservative government, center right, uh, or center, and basically, what does it need to do? What does it need to consider to start attracting voters, making a a, a message that is attractive, and how does it get involved? Where does it start? Right. Well, I think the easiest spot for a right of center government, a conservative government, a BC liberal government, uh, to use the, the local or provincial uh, labels for this, really needs to start approaching this from, is from a question of where the market is and are we getting the right responses? And the way the current system is structured, it is highly prescriptive, highly regulated in a way that doesn't actually lead to any benefits overall. Uh, so I, I mentioned the zoning stuff earlier. Every single lot in the city has specific rules down to what square foot of floor space you're allowed to build on it. And this is ostensibly there because you need to plan sure incompatible uses are not uh, beside each other, but when you really look at it in terms of how it's practiced and not just how it is argued for, not just the theoretical justification, that doesn't actually really work and isn't actually how it uh, is done in practice. So the example everyone always cites is you don't want a chemical factory beside a neighborhood uh, residential area, which yeah, that makes sense. I mean, for the most part, you're not going to have a industrial site be able to bid against uh, a condo building for the land in central Vancouver anyway. Uh, but putting that aside, where we are seeing the little bit of development that is allowed in Vancouver is on major roadways where mm. it's noisy, it's polluted. I used to live uh, right off uh, half a block off Broadway. It was terrible, particularly in the summer when the motorcycles we're uh go, i've lived go in edmonton the motorcycles are the worst the bane of the, the bane of urban existence even yeah. worse than nimby's <laughs> loud pipes so it, save lives <laughs> yeah. I'm kidding you have higher levels of air pollution which is terrible for people everything we learn about air pollution every year just suggests it's worse and worse than we previously thought it makes mm. no sense for planners who are in, in theory there to prevent incompatible uses to be 
pushing everything there. And it exists primarily for political reasons. And the way cities and development actually works is it is basically centrally planned in a way that yep. wouldn't be that far out of place in uh, the Soviet Union. To <laughs> exaggerate, but only very slightly. Like, the, yeah. the, the way cities work and... But why does it take us so long to build? I see China building cities like that. <laughs> you know? There's For a us? process, James, and it must be <laughs> adhered to. Um, <laughs> So yeah, you, you have the city planners basically going through every lot in the city saying, we can build this here, we cannot build this here. And as a result, you don't actually get the natural feedback mechanisms that land prices, that markets, that all of the ways that a society kind of collects the dispersed information and funnels it into decision making mm -hmm. that naturally happens in so many other areas of the economy happens here. Uh, and that is because it is you know, so rigidly prescribed down to angles of roofs that can be built, how much square footage as a percentage of the land area can be built on any area. So you, you don't actually get that realistic feedback. And where I think uh, conservatives in particular can really talk about this and offer solutions is to think back to what cities were like and how they used to grow. And I'm not saying go back to the era when it was just a free-for-all when there was no public sanitation or any of that stuff. Uh, it, it's easy to misconstrue. What, what I'm saying is before we started having everything so rigidly planned, people could buy a, a lot or two and add a little bit or take it maybe from a detached house or duplex up to, say, a four-unit building. And, you know, mm -hmm. they'd live in one unit and rent out a couple others for some little income you had this very organic way, this natural process where cities would grow, you'd start to increment up slowly on the intensity of the land use. And I think there's a way to return to that where you're getting all the benefits of this dispersed information collection system that is effectively the market and bringing it all together and that information getting conveyed in prices to developers on how they want to proceed to increment up. And then you keep the city planners doing the work of limiting externalities, coordinating utilities, all these things that no single actor can really coordinate. You do need a government to yeah. manage that stuff. And particularly in cities that have some very complex infrastructure and coordination problems, you absolutely need a role for that. But there is also a spot where the city can be a lot less focused on what happens on the lots <laughs> and a lot more focused on what happens between the lots. And yeah. <laughs> I, I laugh because I've just seen like the amount of time counselors are going on between, you know, one to between a, a five to a six story and this little facade here and a touch of whimsy here. And, and this is counselors. Uh, for days, slows for days, yeah, for days, and yeah, it just so slows down the process. I, I would encourage every single person listening to this to go to their local council and just watch a public hearing or two on it because it is truly an eye with a bottle of You got to sneak booze in with you. <laughs> yeah, well, it's easier these days when everything's online and you can watch it from sure. home. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it, it is truly an eye-opening experience watching all this actually be done. People finagling over little tiny details that in the grand scheme of things aren't that consequential 
I just keep I keep thinking about like the the poor architects and designers that go to school for years and years to become good at this craft. And then they go up against a city and you've got Joe Blow counselor telling him how to do his job and everything. And oh, that is, yeah. and like, <laughs> um, there was a rezoning early in this current council's term where uh, Pete Fry, one of the green counselors was talking about how he wanted uh, the architects to engage the local residents in a co-creation <laughs> process as if proximity to a potential future building gave one architectural knowledge to design it. <laughs> it, it, it is, yeah, these public hearings can often turn into farce and they're horribly time consuming. It's yeah. not uncommon for them to stretch over multiple days for projects with a dozen units or so. <laughs> if you actually do the math on what the laundry public hearings take on a per home built process, it is entirely unsustainable and can't be scaled up to work uh, with the number of units that have to be built, which every year is in probably 15 to 20,000 just for the city of Vancouver, which wow. is. And that's to kind of break, small... that's to kind of meet the demand. Yeah, that's just kind of to not even the... to make start... up the previous demand that we haven't done in 15 years. That, that's meet the demand, start to chip away a okay, little bit. 15 to 20,000. Okay. Yeah. 15 to 20,000 is kind of where a couple estimates fall on that, just for City of Vancouver, which is 630,000 people uh, in a region of two and a half million. So you scale that up across the entire region and it build a lot of homes just to accept yeah. the migration that's coming in from other parts of Canada, from around the world. Yeah. And we want that because we want people to come here because they are the next generation of entrepreneurs. They are the people who will help us grow the economy and help us build a stronger, better Canada. And as well, part I mean, of that, any places e to have homes. Even getting beyond just the economic uh, uh, necessities of it, it's just that I, I'll have this discussion when people put a fuss up against development or change. And I'm like, well, you do realize Vancouver is considered one of the most beautiful and desirable places to live in the world, not only Canada, but in the world, like people want to come and live here, right? Just as much as you love to live here with your family and you want the great parks, the great schools, the great amenities, nice housing, all that other people want that too. Right. And they want that for the kids should be a great place for families. Um, uh, you know, to to come and live and grow, right? It's yeah, exactly. I I, kind of, I grew up on Vancouver Island, but uh, yeah, when I was uh, in my early twenties and kind of in a spot where I was changing careers, I moved back from the Maritimes because <laughs> I love this place so much, and yeah, yeah, drove multiple days across the country, spent a fair bit of money doing so, just because <laughs> this is such a great place to live. <laughs> And yeah. <laughs> I wanted to return here. Well, I, I want to kind of answer James's question because he put it out to Yeah, I put me, it out to I'm you. Gonna I just, hear you. I'm going to try to do it quickly because I'm not as knowledgeable as Scott, but I, I got my gut instincts. One, I am so blown away that the there's a disconnect between being a quote-unquote center-right conservative and, not, and having a general distrust of regulation. And yet when we get to cities, we love to see we, we, the conservative types of people love the regulation. And so I don't see why a either a federal conservative government or a BC liberal or equivalent in other provinces and more likely provinces because the federal government is a lot more distant from the municipality in terms of the way their powers work. 
um, can't really, really work to cut down legislation in cities. Cities are, in every province that I am aware of, um, a creature of statute. They are, as the lawyers would say, they are created by the province, and the province has jurisdiction over them. So, if this, it, you know, at the at the really root level, if and I, I may be corrected on this, but but at the really root level, my understanding is, if a province passes a law that it doesn't like single-family exclusionary zoning, for example, the city can't really do anything about it. They've just got to get on with what they've got to get on. And it seems to me that both the federal government and the provincial government hold the purse strings, and they should be looking at cities and saying, there's a real issue here generationally with our voter base, with our future entrepreneurs and growing businesses, and we're going to hold up those purse strings until X number of units get added into the into the pile. And if that's 15, 20, 10, 15, whatever it is per city, I think that that's the only way forward is to have a provincial government, especially, that says, we're only going to give you this money for your high, for your transit and for other things when you add the next 10,000 houses. 10,000, yeah. not houses, 10,000 units of available space. I completely agree on that. Um, you, you look at the places that do really well around the world and they have a much more decentralized yeah. land use process. Uh, and you the, let the, the city example, sort out how to do that. Like you let the city, like, okay, we got to add fifteen thousand. Where do we do it? How do we do that to make it happy? You, you, you got to. That's still their right to to figure that stuff out because there is a lot of complications around utilities and management and and you know zoning conflicts. But make them do it. Yeah, or you can even look at a model like Japan does, where they actually zone at a national level and oh, that wow. bypasses a lot of the local opposition. Now, for the reasons you said, uh, it would have to be done provincially here. Yes. But there is absolutely a role for the province to step in here. And I think it's going to be important. And I think this is something conservatives have to really grapple with is there's definitely a tendency to always prefer the most local uh, level of decision-making, but that's not always appropriate. BC doesn't have its own defense policy and it would make no sense for us to have our own military. That's, I don't know, part of a coalition with all the other provinces <laughs> to do it, it. It wouldn't work. And the same way is it wouldn't, it doesn't necessarily work to have the lowest level be the ones that decide what the amount of growth, what the amount of housing is, what is appropriate for that. Because what happens in New Westminster or Burnaby or Port Moody doesn't just affect New Westminster, Port Moody, or Burnaby. It affects the entire region. And for the reasons we were talking about earlier, not just the region, but the province's economy overall. And it's just not the case we're getting good results by trying to make this as local as possible. You know, we don't want a case where the, you know, 10 closest neighbors to a building get to decide its fate for the reasons we talked about earlier. But maybe the closest 20,000 isn't the right level to really work at it either. Maybe we should be looking at this either at a regional or provincial level. And ultimately, because cities are creatures of the province, the province is responsible for what happens in them. They set guidelines on what provinces can and can't do. Um, for example, I know the city of Vancouver wants to change a bunch of speed limits, but they can't. That's our problem. And don't go down the path of, of lowering speed limits. It's a horrible, it's a, so uh, like quick tidbit here. In Calgary, it became, when I grew up in Calgary, it became a thing. And then a rumor started because it was a playground zone. So what it was. So it goes from 50 down to 30 near a playground zone. 
And then it kind of became, got out there, that if you lived within a playground zone, because the traffic goes by your house slower, the property value increases. Now, whether or not that is true, I don't know, but that was the rumor that was going around very strongly. So suddenly, every community group is trying to find every piece of grass they can and stick a playground on it so that they can claim that the three blocks before and after it are in the playground zone. And they want. And I think Calgary has more playground zones than every other city in, in, in Canada combined. I believe, I'll have to look up the numbers, I believe it's more than 300. And... <laughs> You're, and it's great for the police because if you speed in a playground zone, it's a double, it's a double the regular rates. Everybody loves it except for the people who have to like struggle through five playground zones on their way on a on a fifteen block like journey from one kind of neighborhood to the next. But so I think you're doing a really good job here of laying out the problems with a hyper local yeah, decision. That's exactly framework. the problem. And, then, and, it, and and little things like that. Same with like heritage heritage designations kind of a good idea like there's a there's a there's a place for it and then it suddenly gets hijacked because somebody realizes like oh i can make i can up my i can protect my investment using this legislative tool and nobody really cares about it nobody really pays attention to it so i can push the bureaucrats around and i can make it happen get myself a yeah, playground exactly. zone yeah yeah i definitely agree the the heritage process has been uh, corrupted by a lot of uh, bad faith actors on that front um well okay Maybe not speed limits, but uh, <laughs> revenue raising power is another thing that cities are constantly struggling with and would love to have more ability for. There is, I think, a p potential here where we reform the way cities and provinces interact and how powers are split between them. And maybe we move land use up a little bit more to a higher level decision making. And maybe we give mm. cities a little more power in another area. And yeah, I, I think this is an area where the province and uh, leadership from a center-right party uh, looking to make reforms would absolutely be welcome. And it, it, you talk to councillors one-on-one where there's no mics or anything, a lot of them will admit they don't really want to spend their days listening to a bunch of random people come to them to complain about buildings that are going up near them and having to take unpopular votes to allow affordable housing to be built in their communities. A lot of them would rather this be a decision they didn't have to make. And yeah, mm. there is a political grand bargain that can be struck here, but it's going to take leadership. Okay. So on that note, actually one more note, I looked it up. Calgary has 1200 playground zones. And the, when I was when I was growing up, those were only in effect between one hour before sunrise and one hour after sunset. And so you try to write a ticket as a police officer and go to argue about what day and pull out the sun chart to figure out what day sunrise <laughs> and sunset was that day. Like it's an it, it's an interesting idea, nightmare of a actual implementation. But Scott, can't thank you enough. We'll definitely coordinate with you again because you and Ian are great uh, talking about BC politics. And so it's always great to connect with you and your listeners. And yeah, uh, glad to come on. Thanks, you're welcome anytime. Me. We're going to we're going to do another one right now put, to go on your guys's podcast. So it'll be great. Yeah, so uh, listen yeah, to both. This. Everybody's got to listen to both this week. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Come check out Playcoast and listen to uh, the guys here uh, talk about uh, Kind of the future of the center right in Canada. Um, okay. But before we go, I just want to uh, give a shout out to uh, not only my podcast, Blitzos, but uh, kind of the other hat I wear in this space is as one of the directors of Abundant Housing Vancouver. We're a uh, local group of renters and aspiring homeowners who <laughs> 
believe that well, housing should be abundant and that we need to grow our cities and that the path to affordability comes from available and abundant housing. And if you want to get involved in uh, here in Vancouver, give us a shout. Uh, there's a bunch of similar groups across the country. Uh, yes, in New West is uh, the other one I'm familiar with in the Lower Mainland. But uh, yeah, take we'll, a look. We'll definitely for, link uh, that. In groups the, start your own. We'll link that, that in our show notes. So definitely check that yeah, out. And uh, that. yeah, you can email your city councilor. I'm sure they'll give you links for that too. So thanks Andrew so much. Andrew MLA. Andrew MLA. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. Thank you so much for listening to Unbound. If you enjoyed our conversation, the best way you can help us continue it is to give us a like and a five-star review wherever you get podcasts. It'd go a long way to help us grow our user base and include more and more people in our conversation. See you next time.